A lifelong investor and philanthropist, Nicholas Beruin was inspired to transform both the philanthropic landscape and the world of think tanks. Founded in 2010, the Beruin Institute's mission is to use philosophy to shape the cultural foundations of our political and social institutions. In 2015, Mr. Beruin launched the Beruin Philosophy and Culture Center, which is dedicated to encouraging new ideas and fresh thinking across cultures and disciplines. So the question is, how do you unite people? How do you get them to communicate? Well, everybody's communicating on social media, which is great. Uh, so everybody has access, that's wonderful. Um, everybody has a voice, um, and it's a global voice, which is fabulous. But what gets people together besides liking each other or following each other? You need to go beyond that. Mr. Beruin is also a world leader in arts advocacy. He is the head of the board of the Beruin Museum in Berlin, a member of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, the International Councils of the Tate Gallery in London, and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. At an Ivy Entrepreneur Night, Nicholas shared his insights about starting a premier philanthropic organization in the age of globalization and technology. He also discussed his view of the most urgent global problems facing this generation, as well as the tools future leaders will need to tackle them. Please enjoy our inspiring conversation with Nicholas Bruin. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Thank you so much for coming tonight, Nicholas. Um, I want to get started with asking you about what it was like growing up. Was there a particular mission or idea that drove you in your vision, and how did you get to where you are today? Does this work? It works great. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for being here. And um, I think it's, it's quite true. It's an eerie night to all be together, um, you know, in front of... Uh, something that could really be life-changing for, I think, all of us tomorrow. So um, I sort of find it interesting. <laughs> um, so talking about interesting, I was lucky because I grew up in Paris. And um, I was interested in um, everything that sort of French culture could give me. and. That's the world of ideas, um, the world of politics, and that's what I came back to today with the Institute. But at that time, what stimulated me was really um, trying to understand how the world worked, engaging with others, and doing it really through all the people who, at least in France, had contributed to the world of ideas. And um, I did a lot of experimentation. And the experimentation when you're a teenager um, is pretty varied. 
Um, <laughs> and you, 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 you discover who you are physically, but um, in my case, it was also mental. And um, being in Paris, being in France, I started almost as an anarchist, as opposed to uh, really, um, I would say, a good citizen. So I went the other way. <laughs> So sorry, this is not very inspiring, but the idea, <laughs> the idea is um, experiment at the beginning. And, uh, and um, it's normal to t test yourself and test the environment you grow up in. Um, and I try to test li the limits for sure. So you have a tremendous interest in ideas and philosophers and philosophies. So to get to know you better, I'd love to ask you about your personal life philosophy. What do you believe is most important to live a happy and fulfilled life? Well, um, going back to those days in, in Paris as a teenager, I would say the one lesson that I got from reading was very French existentialist idea of engagement, of personal engagement. And I think that if you engage in everything you do and you sort of see yourself as an actor, not really as a passenger, it becomes much more interesting. At times, you have to have enough humility and grace to be a good passenger. But at the end of the day, um, what makes life so interesting is that you are an actor. And an actor is really, an actor not in the Hollywood sense, sorry. Uh, an actor in, as, a, as a human, as an agent. Uh, and so the engagement, uh, personal engagement, um, is really, at the end of the day, which, what will, in my mind, bring you Fulfillment, bring discovery, bring happiness, challenges also. But I think happiness comes through overcoming certain challenges. And those you can set personally. Sometimes, unfortunately, life sets them for you. But how you deal with them and overcome them will define you. And ultimately, um, I think happiness is found by dealing with things in a very personal way and not letting sort of fate define it for you. So building off that, you're talking about the importance of action, of being a principal actor that's making change. And you've personally led many initiatives throughout your life. You lead some incredible initiatives today. You've also collaborated with a lot of world leaders personally as well. We have a huge group of rising leaders here in the audience. In your experience, we need you. <laughs> in your experience, what are the, let's say, the three qualities that make a great leader? I think you have to have 
permission. You have to be, well, you have to be thoughtful. You have to own your actions. So in that sense, you have to have a moral compass. You have to have a vision. And you have to be able to communicate. Okay. Um, we talk a lot about the importance of ideas. Ideas have always had a tremendously important role throughout history, but specifically today, why are ideas and engaging with ideas more important than ever? Well, I don't know how you feel, but we're in an interesting time where the political environment we're in today in the US is actually pretty similar all around the world. So Europe, where I come from, at every country level, the country you're from originally, Turkey, every country um, today is, and this is, I think, the case of countries in the West, like Europe, like the US, but also Asia, China, India, um, Turkey, uh, Russia in between, um, where you have very strong reactionary forces, nationalism, and I think they're symptoms. They're symptoms of a world where people sort of look at the past as a safer place, and they're afraid, in essence, of the future. Even though the future could be more exciting today, and I think is more exciting today than it's ever been for any generation. So I'd rather be young than old today. I mean, at any time, but especially today. <laughs> um, and, and I think that, but that's not how the world is reacting politically. And why? Because I think we're going to change so much as humanity. We have the first time the ability to self-transform as humans using technology like gene editing or artificial intelligence. These things are very exciting, but also very scary. So you almost need new uh, paradigms, political, ethical, social paradigms. And so more than ever, I think you need new ideas. Um, because if you listen, and this is one of the issues of the election, if you look, listen to uh, politicians and political parties, they're reacting to fairly short-term issues and needs. But have they outlined a vision for what will the world look like in 10 years? What will the social environment, the social contract, political system, um, economic um, contract look like in a world that's fundamentally going to change? And I don't think necessarily that the answers are going to come from tr traditional politicians. They may come, frankly, from you or from other people who really will come up with new ideas. And throughout history, for good and bad, the people who have really made the big changes are people who've come up with ideas that have gathered steam. And they may be terrible ideas or they may be great ones, but communism, Karl Marx, Jesus Christ, Confucius, Socrates, 
really are the ones who made us who we are today. They changed our world. And these are people who were thinkers or who were um, leaders in terms of a mindset, a way of life. They weren't traditional, fairly narrow practitioners. So ideas in a, led, in a larger sense, I think, is where you want to be in terms of coming up with very deep solutions. I'm sorry for the long answer, but I feel that the answers are not going to come from necessarily the most traditional places. And you've established a very particular, unique type of prize with the Berggren Institute. Would you like to share with us what the mission of that prize is? And I believe you had your first person that you awarded it to as well this year. So the, the Institute is based, again, simply on the fact that, in my mind at least, um, politics in terms of the political system and the culture behind politics will make the biggest impact on everybody's life. Um, even though I grew up in Paris, I'm German by origin, and if you lived in East Germany or in West Germany, you had very different experiences. Same culture, but totally different experiences. Um, when the wall fell, Germany became one again, so the culture dominated. And so people's lives will be affected by politics, but politics will be affected by culture, culture's ideas. So we felt, again, to go back to the prior question, that ideas will really shape us more than anything else. And if you think of what is rewarded, and rightly rewarded, um, you have a Nobel Prize for economics, for peace, for scientific endeavors. You have a Pritzker Prize for architecture. So these are all wonderful prizes. Uh, but you don't really have the same kind of reward really for thinking, for pure thinking. And that's why we established, in essence, a philosophy prize, um, which rewards a thinker uh, for their contributions um, to advancement as humans, not necessarily in a narrow field. And it's, I believe, a $1 million prize, and you chose your first philosopher this year? So this is going to be a yearly prize, um, $1 million prize, and uh, we, there's an independent jury, um, very prominent jury, but interestingly enough, uh, well, nine-member jury with um, people who are Westerners, but also Chinese and Indian and African. So it's really a um, um, very much a multicultural group. And it wasn't chosen just to be multicultural. These people are very smart, highly accomplished. Uh, Antonia Pia, Amatya Sen, uh, George Yeo, um, Antonio Damasio, who's here, by the way, in, uh, in Los Angeles. So very, I think, good group of people. And um, they chose uh, a Canadian uh, philosopher, whose name is Charles Taylor, and who I think is pretty appropriate. Um, he was just here actually at UCLA. I mean, he, he gave a few lectures at UCLA. Maybe some of you uh, went. Um, but I think he's pretty appropriate for the times because he believes in two things that in theory are contradictory. He believes, and he's uh, being Canadian, and he is at McGill, which is in Quebec, French part of Canada. He believes in um, 
multiculturalism, meaning different cultures, but different cultures not for themselves, but together. And I think that's an important message at a time when, um, you know, I think a lot of, uh, well, a lot of the world is doing the opposite. Uh, and a lot of the political leaders are trying to um, retrench as opposed to engage. And I think he's, uh, his message is a powerful, very, very human message. Focusing on that, so there seems to be this disconnect within countries between uh, different socioeconomic classes, between people and their government, uh, between also people of different age groups. How can ideas work to kind of unite and bridge these different cultural divides? Well, uh, again, and I'm not advocating for this at all, but if you look at the past, um, you had, in most societies, you had a few dominant schools of thought. Very often they were religious, and that united everyone. Um, young, old, men, women, people of power, people of no power. And um, today, you have much less of that. So the question is, how do you unite people? How do you get them to communicate? Well, everybody's communicating on social media, which is great. Uh, so everybody has access, that's wonderful. Um, everybody has a voice, um, and it's a global voice, which is fabulous. But what gets people together besides liking each other, or following each other? You need to go beyond that. And that's really um, something that sort of gets you together. And that could be culture, that could be an experience, but at the end of the day, it also needs to be um, something that transcends, and that's really the world of ideas. Okay, and if you were to give some specific examples of this in action, what would you specify what's happening today, like these days, to really unite people that you see are positive signs? Well, if you think, I mean, And I think many of you were probably too young. Um, but 20 years ago, the idea of climate, the idea of the Earth, was really a very weak idea. I don't think people cared that much. I mean, some people did. But there was no communal sense that the idea of protecting the Earth, protecting the environment that one um, lives in and uses, is that important? That's a fairly new idea, very powerful. Um, the ideas, the idea which is a nascent idea, that, for example, animals may have a spirit or may have something that is not human, but that we should be sensitive to and protect. Um, that's a fairly new idea. You may love animals, but you may ne never have treated them as beings. Um, the idea, frankly, of men and women being equal is an idea that really developed over a hundred years. So again, what ideas today that seem obvious to you may have been developed in some cases over the last 10 years, some cases over the last 20 years, 
uh, in some cases of a hundred years. And there'll be new ones, but those ideas will reshape who we are and how we deal with each other. And I think that, again, um, social media and you know, the fact that we have global communications, I think it's powerful because it'll help, uh, but it can also destroy. So zooming out to the macro global uh, perspective, we had the Cold War and a bipolar world, US and the USSR. And then afterwards we had the unipolar world and now for, uh, from a lot of perspectives, the belief is that we're moving towards a more multipolar world. What do you think about this and what do you think are gonna be the implications for everyone here in the audience? Well, I think one interesting thing is that, I mean, I'm just looking. Um, and if, if this was 20 years ago, certainly 50 years ago, the audience, you, would have been, let's say, one shade or, you know, <laughs> one, 50 years ago, you would have even maybe dressed the same way. And I think that you represent um, exactly what you're talking about. The, the, the world has changed. It is uh, uh, multipolar, multicultural. But that creates a huge challenge. And the challenge is that from going to from one dominant um, culture, which is really the sort of American-led liberal democracy, which has worked beautifully for the US and worked beautifully for a lot of Western countries, America is no longer going to be dominant the way it was. There are challenges. There are other cultures, other political systems, especially China. And China has proven itself. Culturally, China couldn't be more different than the US. The political system, the ethos, the history is totally different. But they're real, they're going to stay, they're going to grow. So we, as Americans, have to be able, and as Westerners, we have to be able to respect and work with a country that has a totally different political system, totally different culture, totally different way of looking at the world, and we have to respect them for who they are. We may not necessarily approve or like it, we may not want to move there, but on the other hand, we will have to work with them. And they're not the only ones. There are other cultures uh, that are asserting themselves, other countries that are asserting themselves. We may not like it, but they're going to be around. And the, the world is fragmenting in every way, politically, culturally, economically. And it's going to get messy. And you've never had, actually, two rising powers, oh no, sorry, two powers who were, who divided up the world peacefully. It hasn't happened. So in this case, China and the US will have to balance each other. And then you have actors in between that are seriously important and powerful. Um, India, Russia, and ultimately, there may be one or two in Africa, and they will probably be Indonesia. So we have to learn to respect others and to not think that our way is the only way and that we should export what we believe in and sort of convert the world. Because that's a religious, that's a, 
yeah, it's almost a religious attitude. And that's, that's a dangerous attitude because it leads to crusades. And if you look at what happened um, a few centuries ago, um, Istanbul was, at, at that time, uh, Constantinople was, was the focus. Uh, crusades, everybody lost. So we have to keep that in mind. So do you believe the most successful ideas that bring people together is going to somehow synthesize the different cultures, or do you think there will be some dominant new thoughts? So no question there will be new thinking and new ideas that will unite the world. But we also have to understand, in my mind, the differences and respect the differences. So as opposed to saying, okay, we're going to have a synthesis of everything, I think it's going to be, for a long period of time, almost the opposite. There'll be parallel ideas that are interesting, powerful, will um, uh, survive, and then there'll be areas where we meet. And I think it's going to be very important that we meet in certain areas because technology, and we've seen it in the cyber world, by, by not really sort of understanding cyber, we had war with each other between countries. We don't have a, a moral, I mean, a, a global code around cyber. But we will need to, and it'll be to the benefit of the world, to establish a global code around certain new healthcare, especially biotech um, advances. Probably same around artificial intelligence. If you don't have, if we don't have sort of a, a global um, pact um, around some of these issues, we these are going to be very powerful weapons. We've had uh, nuclear weapons, now cyber weapons. They're becoming more and more powerful, and um, and I think the next ones are going to become even more important. And we need to at least find a way to cooperate around those even though we're going to be quite different and we have to respect our differences. At least that's the way I feel. So a lot of uh, what's going to shape the future is going to be individual thinkers, it's going to be companies, it's going to be organizations, but ultimately a lot of governance will continue to fall on governments. And uh, the evening before election day uh, in the United States, if you were to kind of define what is the difference between good governance and effective governance, and how you think government will evolve in the future? So, I mean, this is the ultimate question because the, the um, how do you make governments, governance work for everyone? I mean, government should be a service organization. It should help and service all of you, um, all of us. And, um, and it should be, as a service organization, should be a, it shouldn't be a political instrument. It shouldn't be about winners and losers and who's the most popular. It should, at the end of the day, uh, be there for everyone. So how do you balance the fact that um, in a democracy, um, you know, people compete and get elected, but at the same time, you want a lot of the functions of government to be depoliticized. So you want institutions that function for everyone and are not hijacked by you know, one party in terms of their interests or uh, one lobby group, etc. And we are at a tricky time because you know, populism, as we see it, uh, has been on the rise, not just here, 
every country in Europe. Um, Brexit in the UK happened as really a highly politicized, very populist uh, contest. I mean, contest. So the danger is that you go from government as a service organization to really a, um, a you know, sort of populist uh, fight. And um, we need to go back to uh, government um, as a, um, really as a service organization to serve every, everyone. And, um, and to get there, I think we need to reinvent some of the way we operate. It won't be easy. Um, because change is really the harvest. And in the West, we haven't been able to make, to make change that peacefully. So we'll need to, we'll need to work out. So a lot of our political systems in the West, especially, which have them proliferated elsewhere, were shaped by the ideas of the Enlightenment. So philosophical ideas back then really helped spur on how political developments happened. What do you believe are the next set of philosophical concepts that will shape the next enlightenment and shape the next set of governments and governance systems? I think that you know, the, enli the enlightenment gave us the power of the individual. And I think the individual did a lot. And, uh, and I grew up thinking that. Uh, we now need to be able to balance the power of the individual with the fact that the individual is part of the, the world in the community. And I think that that balance and going, you know, giving the power of the individual, giving the freedom of the individual, giving access. And I think we're going to have more and more freedoms in terms of occupation, in terms of who we are. Um, that's the good news. But I think that more and more, each of us has, potentially has enormous power, um, even as an individual. How do we correlate that power to a world that still has to hold together? Um, a world that's more exciting, more dynamic, but where change is going to be much more dramatic. So to achieve that balance is going to be, in my mind, um, the most interesting challenge. And um, I mean, exciting, but you know, we're at a point where we, it seems we're so afraid of it that we're not really advancing. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.